Lord, we thank you for your kindness this morning. Kindness with the sunshine has already been mentioned. Kindness, Lord, in granting your gospel to us. Kindness in giving us, Lord, a, a body, Lord, that we can gather together and not only be encouraged by you through your word, but, Lord, also be encouraged by one another in our pursuit of you. Encourage, Lord, that life is full of difficult trials as well as times of great joy and to find rest and fully trust you in it all. And Lord, now as we gather around your word, would you fill us now with a hunger and a heart, Lord, to learn from you. Change us, Lord. Shape us. Mold us to be more like your son, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, of course, we know this is New Year's Day, 2023. I remember the year 2000. How many of you remember that? Some of you weren't even born then. Um, but, uh, boy, 2023, time is certainly flying. And it is at this time, as we've already heard a number of uh, times this morning, it's a time in our culture in particular when we look at our lives and we evaluate what happened in the past year, and we try our best to chart a course for what we want 2023 to be like. And so, as you look back at 2022, what journey has God taken you on? What is it that you thought would take place? Was it what you thought would take place? Did your plans unfold like you thought they would? Were there difficulties, challenges, trials, or times of great celebration? Um, you know, we sang a lot of songs this morning about difficulties and waters and having your anchor, but life isn't just a downer, is it? Life is also a wonderful time to walk with God and to celebrate some of the good times, but it's also full of trials and difficulties. What has God been teaching you along the way about himself, about yourself, and about those around you? And then now as you look to 2023, what are you expecting to take place? Are you laying down any resolutions built upon what you experienced in 2022? Are you hoping that life will be a little easier in 2023? Remember all those months with masks on and not being able to sit near each other and hardly ever going out? That was yesterday, I think, with all the rain and the floods. Are you committing before God to do some things different in 2023? The new year is a great opportunity for us to do that and to establish maybe even some biblical habits that God calls you to. Let me just mention a few. Reading your Bible. This is often a time where, where people say, you know, I want to get on a new reading program. I want to encourage you to do that. There's lots of them out there, but get on a, a plan just to read through the Bible. God's people are strengthened when they are in the Word themselves. Just walking through it and letting God speak to them. 
tithing or giving in the church is another place that you can reestablish your commitment to the Lord. Taking the the principles of the 10% from the Old Testament as the foundation for your New Testament grace giving. Is that part of the DNA of your Christian walk? Or attending church and home group regularly where not only can you, you can be contributing, but you are learning from others and God is using you in the context of, of your attendance. Or in the arena of prayer, just making prayer a priority in your own personal walk. Well, friends, I read a, a comic just a couple of days ago where a child is asking an adult, what is a New Year's resolution? And the adult responds, it is a to-do list for the first week of the new year. Pretty accurate when you think about it. Well, as we come to our text today, it's basically teaching us about the following truth. Keep calm and carry on because God is in control. Now, that's not the proposition of the sermon. But there's a sense in which that is what's kind of the idea that is going on here. Keep calm and carry on because God is in control. That should be something that we as Christians are able to do. That's much easier said than done, though, isn't it? Friends, it's relatively easy to affirm God's sovereignty over our lives theologically and theoretically. It's another thing to rest fully in his sovereign control experientially. In other words, we can say it, we can affirm it, we can sign on the dotted line that we agree with it, but to live it, that's the challenge. And what surprises us now as we come to this passage is that there is no mention about God, the Holy Spirit, or Jesus. It seems that God is silent and that Paul is on his own. And it's a reminder of that wonderful Old Testament book, Esther, in which God is not mentioned at all, but his fingerprints are everywhere. So this morning, I would like to suggest to you that this passage is a call for every Christian to rest fully in the providence of God even when he is silent. To rest fully. Not just a little bit, but to rest fully. You remember that wonderful verse of Scripture, probably one of the the few verses that you learned when you first came to Christ, Proverbs 3, 5. What does it say? Trust in the Lord with what? All your hearts. And so as we come now to our text, and as we come even to the new year, it's an opportunity for us to rest fully in the providence of God. Now how can we rest fully in God's providence? Well, I think the answer is quite simple. It's by resting firmly on what He has already revealed. You're not always looking for new things. You're looking for the things that he's already taught you, that you already know, that he's built up in the reservoir of your Christian life that you can tap into. You rest fully in those things. And that is what we have driving this text, isn't it? Look at Acts 23 and verse 11. 
We saw it last time driving the previous long section that we looked at. If you remember, this is where uh, there's a Jewish mob that rises up to kill Paul. The tribune is about to flog Paul. Paul is punched in the face by one of the high priest's men. And he's present there as this gathering turns violent between the Sadducees and the Pharisees because Paul affirmed the resurrection. And at the end of this section, here's what we read. 23.11, the following night the Lord, what? Stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let me remind you how I left you last time we were in that passage. What we found here are four things. The Lord knew Paul, the Lord was with Paul, the Lord was for Paul, and the Lord was not finished with him. Now these truths were not just for Paul to look back on and find encouragement. They are there to fuel him for what lies ahead. God says, I was with you, and guess what? I will still be with you. I'm for you, and I'm still for you. I'm working through you, and I'm still working through you. I am not finished with you yet, Paul. And so although Jesus is not mentioned in this unfolding story, his fingerprints are all over it. Paul could look ahead with the strength and encouragement of what God had been teaching him. He could keep calm and carry on knowing that God was in complete control. Now friends, keeping calm and carrying on isn't a call for stoic or unemotional obedience. I just got to endure it. I just got to suffer. God just wants me. No, it means trusting in God's uh, sovereign purposes through your pain, through your suffering, even through your loss. God created us as human beings with emotions and feelings, and there are times that it's right to weep. There are times it's right to be uncertain or even to fear. But in the midst of that, we fight through that to say, I'm going to rest fully in the providence of God. Well, let's jump into our passage and see what it says. It's divided really into three sections. It's all about a plot, a plot that's been established, a plot that is going to be exposed, and then ultimately a plot that is going to be evaded um, by uh, by Paul in particular through God's sovereign purposes. Let's look first of all at this plot that is established, verses 12 through 15. We have this Jewish conspiracy, don't we? The participants here really are twofold. First of all, we have 40 Jewish oathmen, 40 Jews, established this plot together. They bound themselves by an oath that they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Now, they were likely Jewish zealots. And in today's terms, we would call them Jewish terrorists. In other words, they were people that affirmed a commitment to the nation, and if there was any way that someone was kind of undermining that. They had no conscience to go out and to murder that person for their own purposes. So they were terrorists. They were secretive. You wouldn't know who they were. They were violent, not so much political. They were just 
take care of things on their own. They were assassins willing to keach a kill to reach their goals. And it's possible, even likely, that Judas Iscariot was a member of this zealot group. Iscariot means assassin. We don't know. So the, these 40 Jewish oathmen, and they approached now the chief priests and elders. Notice verse 14, they went to the chief priests and elders. So these zealots now join forces with the chief priests and elders. Particularly here, these are the Sadducees. The plan was for the Jewish leadership to call on the tribune and to have another gathering, another council, so to speak, where Paul could once again answer questions that they have. But this was all just a ruse to get Paul out so that these 40 assassins could descend on him and ultimately kill him. Now, it's worth noting here that the Pharisees are not in league with the opposition conspiracy. Why? Well, if you remember in the last passage, the conflict rose up between the Sadducees and the Pharisees because Paul affirmed his belief in the resurrection, which is what the Pharisees believed in, and they specifically said, we find nothing wrong with this man. So they're not going to join up to kill him when he affirms what they believe. Now, what would terrorists and religious leaders be doing together when the zealots were actually antagonistic toward that Jewish leadership because of their partnership with Rome? Well, as the saying goes, a common enemy will bring together strange bedfellows. In other words, they will set aside their differences to root out and to defeat a common enemy. And in this case, the common enemy is Paul. Now, what's the plan? I highlighted it a little bit earlier, but just notice in verses 14 and, and following, this is we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, we expect that kind of behavior from zealots, but we don't expect that kind of behavior from the Godly religious elites. In fact, them joining together with the zealots here is evidence of their ongoing hypocrisy, isn't it? And friends, when religion and politics mix, there is always a tendency to utilize politics to put forward one's own religion. And to use that political power to abuse the law in the name of religious tolerance. And what will become clear in the next few chapters is that from a legal perspective, the authorities have no reason to have Paul arrested or in prison. He's innocent in their minds, but they're keeping him there to protect him, but also to please that religious authority or those religious elites. Now what's ultimately going on here is a theological difference. Paul is basically saying in all of his arguments, guess what? I believe in the Old Testament, and I believe that a Messiah is coming. But where we have a difference is the Messiah has already come. He is the fulfillment of that Old Testament, and the Jewish leaders are rejecting that truth. And so now they want to get rid of him. So he has, Paul has in their minds, a troublesome theology that they want to undermine and get rid of. Now we know from history 
then in many cases, theological differences have resulted in excommunication and even execution. We see that during the course or the buildup or even during the Reformation, don't we? Where true followers of Christ were burned at the stake simply because of their Reformed faith. Or people were were executed simply because they translated the Word of God into a common tongue. But the religious leadership of that time did not want those things to take place. Now, I don't think that there is anyone in this auditorium who's being pursued by 40 men bonded together by an oath to not eat or drink until you are killed. Anyone like that here? We can offer protection, maybe. Um, But we do have an enemy, friends. And that enemy is a far greater enemy. And our enemy is Satan. And the Bible describes him as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour And he is an extremely fierce foe and all the more dangerous because he is a spirit being and we cannot see him. But he joins forces with the world and the flesh to undermine the followers of Christ. Let's just take those three just briefly here as we think about our common enemies because we are Christ's followers. There's first of all the world system. And it's the system of man that is opposed to God. Paul tells us in Romans 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. J.B. Phillips translates it well, I think. He's helpful in this. He says, do not let the world system squeeze you into its mold. And friends, in a contemporary sense, that's what shaming is doing in our culture is trying to squeeze people into the ideology of the world. And if you don't conform, then you are the problem. So it's ideologies, it's loves, it's practices, it's pursuits, it's worship. Instead, he says, Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, allow the Word of God to fashion and shape your mind and heart for life. So the option is there. The world is going to try and squeeze you. Instead, we say the Word of God filters out the stuff and helps me focus on Christ. Then there's the flesh. These are the desires. The constant pressure to allow your sinful desires to drive your thinking, your behavior, and your attitudes. You all know what I'm talking about. There are these thoughts and ideas and behaviors or tastes and wants that kind of crop up uh, just kind of at a time when you're, you're least expecting it and all of a sudden what is good is now tainted by this sinful desire to have and to want. We try and beat it down, but sometimes... We allow it to win the day. Selfishness, greed, jealousy, anxiety, anger, lust, and on we go. But Paul tells us to put the flesh to death. It's not a one-time event. (laughs) I wish it were, (laughs) but it's not. It's It's the call for being a disciple of Christ to put off the old man, to fight the deeds of the flesh, to be renewed in the spirit of mind, and to put on Christ. So you're putting to death the flesh, and you're putting on those, that righteousness that Christ gives you. And then, of course, the devil. He's the enemy of God who has as his goal to draw you and me away from our commitment to Christ. He will do all he can to deconstruct your 
faith. Friends, we battle with enemies who want to destroy us every day. Have a happy life, right? Well, that's the reality because we're followers of Christ and we're living in a sin-cursed world. So there's this plot, and this plot has been established. And now in our story, the plot is exposed. And what we read here is totally unexpected. It's really coming out of nowhere, isn't it? For this is the first and only time we have any record of Paul and his family. It's like, where did this come from? And what we find in verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. I had no idea that Paul had a sister, and I had no idea that he had a nephew. But he does, apparently. Now this is what we find. We really don't know anything about Paul's nephew. Likely, he comes from a wealthy family, just as Paul did, but we don't know uh, what he's doing in Jerusalem. Likely, again, I'm using that word likely to kind of help us here, likely he's in Jerusalem as a student, very similar to what Paul had done. And he's likely a young teenage boy. We read of him in our text described as a young man. But there's also a nuance that happens when he is brought before Lysias, the tribune. It says that he takes him by the hand. You don't usually take a teenage boy of 15 by the hand. You usually take a, a younger boy by the hand. So it's just, you put those things together, you think this is a young teenage boy. It's not significant to the story, but I think it's helpful in understanding what's going on here. And somehow... We're not given all the details, but Paul's nephew overheard the talk of the plot to kill Paul. Where was he? We don't know. How did he hear? We don't know. What we know is that he heard. And so he comes to Paul in prison to tell him what he had heard. Secondly, not only is it revealed by a nephew, but it's passed on by a centurion. As soon as Paul heard it, uh, he, he speaks to the centurion and instructs him to take his nephew to the tribune because he has something important to tell him. Now, I just want you to stop, and I want you to think about the providence of God here. Paul the prisoner instructs a centurion to take this young man to the tribune. Prisoners usually don't have any authority to tell soldiers what to do. But in this case, the centurion's like, well, yeah, sure, I'll take that, and I'll go to the tribune. Again, these are just little things, right? Little small things along the way in this story. And then third, he's listened to by the tribune. So when the boy stands before the tribune, he takes him by the hand and speaks to him privately asking, what is it that you have to tell me? And the boy tells the tribune about the conspiracy to kill Paul. And when the tribune hears of the plot to kill Paul, he sends the boy away with clear instructions to Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Now, friends, there's really two lessons I want to draw out of these encounters here that I think might be helpful to us this morning. Number one, our God is the God of small things. He uses small and seemingly insignificant things to accomplish His purposes. I think back on my conversion 
And as I think back on my conversion, I see that God used the sport of soccer to bring me to himself. Now, certainly he used people. Certainly he used the gospel where I was, you know, smack silly with the truth of my sinfulness and the wonder of what he has done on the cross. Certainly that's all part of the package, but he used the sport of soccer to bring me to a place where I would listen to that. He allowed me to play on a team where, where my coach was a youth pastor, and the youth pastor would start every practice by opening up the Bible and sharing the truth of God's Word. He used soccer. It's a small thing. God is a God who uses small things. He used the dust of the ground to create Eve. He spoke to Moses from a burning bush, just a common bush. He, he sent young David to face the Philistine giant Goliath with a sling and five smooth stones. I mean, just think about it. God created all of this world, but he also created five stones and somehow wore them down through water and in a brook somewhere. And he chose these stones. Simple, ordinary things. A little side note, if you ever go to Israel and you go to David's brook, and you, just like everyone, you go up, you pick up, pick up a stone and take it home and say, I got a stone from Davis Brook. Just wait for the pickup truck that's coming that's going to tip a whole bunch of new rocks in Davis Brook before you go home, all right? God uses small things. Samson kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Now, that's, to, that's there to amaze us, but it's, it's a simple jawbone of a dead animal. Small thing. And in our lives, he will often use small things to guide and direct our paths, right? A phone call from a friend, a bunch of red lights, a forgotten wallet or lost keys, a kind word from a total stranger, a cold, the flu, COVID-19, a mistake, a time of confusion. He uses all that kind of stuff to weave his providential plan to accomplish his purposes. And he often uses rather insignificant people to be his servants, right? I mean, he used a, an idol worshiper by the name of Abraham to be the father of Israel. He used Moses, who was the son of Jewish slaves, to lead his people out of Egypt. He used David, the forgotten youngest son of Jesse, ultimately to be the king of Israel. And then, when Jesus comes on the scene, he uses a poor young virgin to bear him as child. He uses insignificant, ordinary people. Friends, there is no light shows in Paul's rescue here, is there? There's no fanfare. His life is spared as a result of people simply doing things that are in front of them that they think is best. God uses their actions to accomplish his purposes. And friends, this is the way God typically operates. He delights in using little things or seemingly insignificant things to accomplish his purposes. And that's what the Apostle Paul reminds us of in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. Just hear what he says here. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You might read this passage and say, well, thanks God for telling me all those things that I'm not. Oh, but friends, don't forget, you are everything in Christ. Now, God uses small things. Secondly, our God is the God of our circumstances. Uh, You probably don't want to be reminded of this. Because oftentimes we complain to God about our circumstances, don't we? God used a young boy that just happened to be Paul's nephew, but he had Paul's nephew in the right place at the right time to hear of the plot to kill Paul. Friends, our circumstances are not irrelevant to God. They are all part of the tools that God uses to accomplish his purposes, no matter how insignificant. Probably the best example of this in the Bible is the story of Joseph. Just want you to think about circumstantial things, right? He's given a coat of many, many colors. I mean, he didn't put that down on his Christmas list. Dad, can I have a coat of many colors because I want my brothers to hate me? No, his father showered love on him. For whatever reason, he loved Joseph, and he showered him with that. And his brothers, that just provoked his brothers to act in a sinful way towards him. And so ultimately he's thrown into a cistern, and a cistern, if you remember, is supposed to be a place where water is to gather. There are many people right now that wish they had a cistern in their backyard, right? But he's thrown into a cistern that happened to be dry. So he doesn't drown. And there just happened to be a Midianite caravan that was headed to Egypt, and Joseph is sold into slavery rather than killed by his brothers. He just happens to be in Potiphar's house who just happened to be the captain of Pharaoh's guard. It's terrible that Potiphar's wife pursues him lustfully, but even the result of that puts Joseph in the same jail that political prisoners were kept in so that he could interact with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker to interpret their dreams, which ultimately put him before the Pharaoh. Circumstances, seemingly insignificant circumstances that when put together tell an incredible, wonderful story. So, you might ask yourself the question, why am I here? Why am I at this place in my life? What is happening to me right now? Of course, hindsight is clearer than foresight, but get this, foresight is fueled when hindsight is seen through the lens of God's promises and providence. Your ability to look forward is fueled when you take time to look at what God has done in the past. When you look back, you can see connection, dot. Dot, line, line, here's God, here's God, here's God. That lets you know that a year from now when you look back, guess what? You're going to be able to see all the dots and all the lines that are connected. But right now, all you see is a blank page. And so your foresight is fueled when hindsight is seen through the lens of God's promises and providence. This past week, my wife and I 
received some surprising news that a bill was being sent to collections. We were shocked. We were horrified uh, that was taking place because we were up to date on our payments and we weren't sure what was going on. And when we called to find out what was taking place, the person on the phone says, yes, it's gone to collections. There's nothing that we can do. We call collections. We're like, yeah, not only that, we're going to either pay the whole thing lump sum or the least we can do uh, or the best we can do is, you know, 12 payments to, to get it paid off. And it was, it was pretty overwhelming. Well, the next day, we called again, and the person on the other end of the phone was an answer to prayer because she listened to our situation, understood our shock and surprise, and made the necessary corrections to pull our bill out of collections. In fact, she was surprised that we were not helped better when we had called the first time. And friends, it was hard not to be angry. It was hard not to turn into a, a Karen, if you know what I'm talking about, right? On, on the phone, demanding you got to do these things. But remember, it was a random situation. Why? Because we were assigned the next available representative. You ever been there? But the Lord brought the right person to help us. See, God is the God of our circumstances. Even the small little things, even when it's a mistake. God is sovereign over small things. He's sovereign over every circumstance. He uses teenage nephews, willing centurions, interested government leaders, sports like soccer, billing representatives. His fingerprints are everywhere if you're just willing to look. So the plot is established, the plot is exposed, but the plot is also evaded. What is surprising here is how quickly the tribune responds to the news of the conspiracy. There's really kind of three parts to this response. There's the, first of all, the escort. And I just want you to notice what we, what we see here. It's, it's pretty... It's pretty incredible. Notice the Tribune calls for 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That's 470 military personnel for one innocent man. I mean, I mean is he struggling with anxiety issues? I don't know. That's, that's a lot of people. And they give Paul the prisoner a horse to ride. Wait a sec. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. It doesn't seem to communicate that Paul is a dangerous person at all. Kent Hughes captures it brilliantly. This is what he says. Paul left town more like a king than a criminal. Meanwhile, his assassins were left in town fighting insistent hunger pains. There's the escort. Secondly, there's the letter. And this letter, again, can be divided into three parts. Uh, I call the first part the buttering up. Right? This letter from the Tribune begins with some political buttering up as Lysias, the Tribune, identifies Felix as his excellency. Now, I understand it's a title, but Felix was not an excellent person at all. The history books show that he was a freed slave known for his violence and deviant behavior as governor of the Roman province of Judah. So, buttering up. Secondly, it was self-serving. Notice, Lysias is shamefully self-serving here. 
Look at verse 27. This is what he says. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, and having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Let's see this. You're such a gallant tribune rescuing those in distress, but you omitted the important part about the fact that I was going to have him flogged, but then thankfully found out that he was a Roman citizen. Now, this is the normal kind of stuff that happens with leaders as they write to each other. They butter each other up. They kind of don't give all the facts and present themselves in, a, in better light. This is normal. But what's really ultimately important here is what we read in verse 28 and following. This is the essential point. It's what the tribune says here that really is critical. He says, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of the law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And here is this theme. It's a sub-theme in Acts, but it's a theme nonetheless that we see over and over and over again. This man is innocent. Christians are not dangerous lawbreakers. But we're going to treat them like they are. <laughs> right? But this is the reality. Once again, and again, throughout the story as we're going to go forward here, yeah, there's nothing really that I find him guilty of, but we're going to imprison him anyway. All right, the same thing as we look at Christ. He is innocent. There's nothing he's done to deserve this. Take Barabbas instead. No, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Okay, Psh, wash my hands of his blood. But notice the reception, verses 31 to 35. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. That's a military hub northwest of Jerusalem, about halfway to Caesarea. And Paul and the horsemen, uh, with the rest of the soldiers, traveled that far, and then 200 of those, or 400 of those men then remained, and the horsemen went on with Paul. Now get this, though the soldiers assumed they were moving a prisoner, God was actually transporting his preacher safely to speak to the ruler of the people. So you can look at God's providence in different ways, can't you? You can say, oh no, look at all those soldiers. They've taken Paul. How is he going to survive this? Or you can say, wow, look at how God protects his servant and gets him safely to where he needs to be. And when Felix receives the letter and finds out that Paul is from Tarsus of Cilicia, he offers to give Paul a hearing and safety in Herod's praetorium. It was normal for a prisoner to be tried in the province where they were, their alleged offense had been committed rather than in his home province. But this also helped um, Felix understand Paul's citizenship and, and, again, verifying where he's from. Now, friends, these events continue to show us God's providence in his unfolding plan. Let me remind you of what Jesus said to Ananias about Paul at his conversion. This is Acts chapter 9. And verse 15, and just see how this all fits together. He says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings 
and the children of Israel. Well, he's gone to the children of Israel, so he's with right now. He's been to the Gentiles, right? He's been to Macedonia. He's been to Greece and to Asia. He's been to cities like Philippi and Corinth and Athens and Ephesus. But now God is going to get Paul before rulers and kings. And the next few chapters will show Paul testifying to to the gospel before Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. How would Paul have the opportunity to speak to such kings and rulers? Does he just waltz into their palace and demand a hearing? Is that how it happens? No, it happens according to God's providence. God will use the injustice of false accusation and imprisonment to give voice to his gospel through Paul. He will testify not as a free man, but as a man who is imprisoned. And God would have Paul summoned before rulers and kings to speak and to give testimony. Not forcing his way in, but summoned by the rulers themselves. You can't write this kind of stuff, friends. See, we read these stories, oh, that's kind of nice. that's cool, yeah. No, this is God working out his providence in ways that are magnificent. Kenneth Gangle summarizes this passage by saying, sometimes God delivers his children by the simple word of a young relative. Sometimes he has to call the cavalry. At all times, he is ultimately in charge. I just want to take a few minutes to bring all this together with some concluding thoughts. It's an incredible passage. What can we learn from this passage then as we look ahead at 2023? Number one, in 2023, you and I will face opposition. You'll face opposition from the world, you'll face your own flesh, and you will face the devil. They will join together to derail you from your plans to follow Christ. And they'll seek to knock you off the path of walking with the Lord. So friends, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Don't be overcome. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Right? The world will hate you. Why? What does Jesus say? Because it hated me first. Secondly, in 2023, God will be at work in your life using both your circumstances and other little things to accomplish his purposes. Therefore, see them as opportunities, not as annoyances. Now, friends, I know it's so natural to see them as annoyances, right? You look at your circumstances and things aren't going the way that you want to. You're like, ah, why is this happening now? As if there was a good time for it to happen. They may be painful. They may be inconvenient. They may be frustrating. But God is using them and you to further his plan on earth. Yes, even your own self-perception of little, old, insignificant you. God is accomplishing his providence for his purposes through you. Number three, in 2023, God's providence will give you opportunities to testify for him in ways that you may least expect. 
Therefore, be ready. Be alert. It could be your boss. It could be your coworker. It could be your professor. It might be your spouse. It could be your child. It could be your landlord. It could be that annoying neighbor. So get equipped. And be ready to open your mouth. That's what Peter says. Give Be ready to give an answer or a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, God did speak to Paul and say, look, just like you have had to endure these things and I've carried you through here in Jerusalem and among Greece, you're still going to have to do this in Rome. The same is true for us. We might speak to people, we might be in front of people with an opportunity to testify that we just could not imagine could take place. And that could happen in 2023. Are you ready for it? Are you planning for it? Are you prepared for it? Are you equipped for it? Fourth, in 2023, you will need to rest fully in the promises of God and His ongoing providence over your life. So it's good for us then to take inventory of what God has been teaching us and to learn all the lessons we can. What did you learn in 2022 about God, about yourself, about the gospel, about the church? And how is that helping you then move into 2023? And then armed with those promises and those truths, press on by God's grace for what He has in store for you. When God blesses, be sure to give Him praise. When God brings a trial, be sure to anchor yourself to His promises and His providence. It might be sickness. It might be heartache. It might be death. Now friends, remember, this is so important for us. God's providence doesn't always mean physical rescue. See, we often are praying that and we want our physical rescue, but sometimes that is not what God has in store. As we've gone through the book of Acts, if you remember faithful Stephen proclaiming God's truth is martyred for his faith. If you remember James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, is martyred for his faith. Even Paul in his final letter to Timothy, anticipating his execution, says the following, and it's rather similar to Acts 23.11. Here's what he says, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6, 16 through 18. And this is like, these are almost his, his very last words. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Doesn't that sound like verse 11 of 23? So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom To Him be glory forever and ever. Friends, do you see what He's saying here? God can rescue us from danger. That's the lion's mouth. 
That's a figurative expression to talk about all those times that his life was in danger and God rescued him. But he can also rescue us from this world by calling us home into his heavenly kingdom. That's rescue, friends. That's rescue. And Paul was settled. Look, either way, whatever God chooses, he can rescue me. Let's never forget that God's servants are immortal until their work on earth is done. No servant of God dies a premature death. Keep calm. Carry on. Because the Lord is in control. He was in control in 2022. He is still going to be in control in 2023. And the call is for us is to rest fully in the, pro- the, the providence of God, even when it seems like He is silent. Lord, help us today. Help us to wrap our hearts and minds around this wonderful reality that You are at work in and through us according to Your own sovereign purposes, and that You use the small things of life You use circumstances. You use people's ideas and attitudes, both good and bad, as the very means by which you are accomplishing your purposes to bring glory to yourself and to carry on your will. And Lord, in this year, we're likely going to have times of joy and celebration and wonder. But Lord, there's going to be likely times of sadness and sorrow. And even, Lord, some that we love being taken home to be with you. Lord, in all of that, we want to see your hand. We want to find confidence and strength to press on. Lord, not to be um, somehow sidelined or discouraged or overwhelmed or overcome, but to be fighting with the fuel of your gospel and the fuel of the certainty of who you are at work in our lives to face every day for your glory. Help us now to do that, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.